Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation Capital, a pre-seed venture firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season is sponsored by our friends at Silicon Valley Bank, a member of the FDIC. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. Learn more about Silicon Valley Bank services at svb.com. Graham Pingree is a principal at Sandana Capital, where he works closely with the firm's fund investments. He was previously a planning manager at Project Frog, a clean energy company in San Francisco. And before that, he was an investment associate with Horsley Bridge, as well as a consulting associate at Cambridge Associates. He's known within the VC community as being one of the most helpful young LPs in the business. Graham, welcome. Super excited to have you on Origins today. Um, I'm here with my partner, Alex, as well. Um, hi. Hi. Thanks, thanks for having me. Excited <laughs> to be on. Welcome. Um, so we are uh, we're on the road this week. Um, we're in San Francisco. Um, we're in the Sandana office. We're in the Sandana office. Um, and we were at the Sandana conference yesterday, which was awesome. Which was awesome. Thank you for Again. having us. Thank you. Um, Glad to hear it. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and your background. You're a principal at Sandana now. Um, tell us a little bit about some of your previous experiences as an LP. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, I started my career on the institutional LP side with Cambridge Associates, the investment advisory firm. Um, and I, I was based in Boston right out of undergrad um, and worked there for three years working mostly with clients with pretty substantial non-marketable portfolios. So a lot of venture capital and private equity exposure. Um, Advising clients to in terms of which venture funds to invest in? Yeah, right. so in, or investment advisory is, is really two-layered. One, there's the asset allocation, helping you know, drive portfolio decisions about where to allocate capital across different asset classes. And then within each asset class, there's a manager selection component. Um, so most of my time was focused on the manager selection within private equity, generally speaking. So a lot of venture capital, but also growth equity and, and some leverage buyouts as well. So Cambridge Associates is an, as an advisory firm, which is different than a fund of funds, for example, like Sandana. Why, why not just actually raise the funds yourself as Cambridge Associates, right? Why, why advise clients to invest in certain funds, but not necessarily allocate the capital yourself? Yeah, I, I think it, it has it has a lot to do with the ethos of, of the founders of Cambridge Associates, Jim Bailey and uh, Hunter Lewis, that they believe very strongly in independence. And once you're managing money for your own, it's, it's hard to be totally objective about any type of other investment decision. So mm-hmm. they've, they've tried to stay, you know, full arm's length from any kind of dis- discretionary investing, um, and they're truly an, an advisory service. Um, and the best one out there, if you ask me. Right, right. And what years was that? So that was 2001 to 2004. Okay. Um, so yeah, uh, and it was when, uh, when in two thousand one did you start? I started in June. Okay. Um, so yeah. So so the was the advice at the time to just stay away from technology startups and venture capital at all costs. 
I'd be you curious know. to know, know how you manage that period of time. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that Cambridge has done really well over the years is they've, they've been doing this a long time and they recognize mm. the cyclicality of, of asset classes and that truly you can't time private market investing. So I, I don't, I mean, there was certainly a, a massive reaction on their, their client base um, and, and there, there was a lot of fear. Um, but I think that they preached maintaining a, a measured pace and, and a reasonable commitment to, to the asset class over <laughs> a long period of time. So um, I, I think they tried to be the, the steady voice um, during right. some, some of the, right. the panic. Right. Um, and you went from Cambridge Associates then to Horsley Bridge? That's Is correct. That right? Yeah. So I, I moved out to San Francisco um, in, in late 2004 and joined Horsley uh, at the beginning of 2005. Uh, and it, it seemed, seemed like a pretty natural career transition at the time. I, I really enjoyed working in the, the private fund investing space. Um, and I, I talked to a lot of the uh, managing directors at Cambridge that I respected a lot about who was doing it on the institutional L LP side as a, as a fund of fund that they had a lot of respect for. And everyone said Horsley was, was one of the best. Um, so I was fortunate enough to, to land with them and spent two years here in their San Francisco office uh, and then a year in, and they have a small office in London as well. Um, so I spent a year over there with them. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Horsley Bridge because um, no I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure we've, we've discussed it on the podcast yet. No. And it does seem to have this kind of mythic aura around it, at least in the venture community. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm, some, some of our listeners have probably heard of it and some have maybe never heard of it. Um, and people, yeah, generally seem to be hesitant to speak about Horsley Bridge. Yeah, they make you sign a non-disclosure right. in blood when you leave. Right, no. <laughs> right. So uh, tell us a little bit about it. I mean, they seem sure. to be certainly one of the best in class fund of funds. Yeah, yeah, no question. Um, I, I think it, it was a fantastic experience for me um, to learn about you know, very thorough investment process on the private fund investing side. Uh, but more importantly, it was the exposure to a, a caliber of fund and general partner that I don't think I would have gotten anywhere else. Um, so they, they have terrific and longstanding relationships with what we think of as the, the best kind of blue chip Right. Life cycle venture capital firms. Um, they've been investing with the Axels, the benchmarks since, yep. since day one. Um, so, uh, and, and really fantastic people there. I'm, I'm still very close with the, the, the managing directors there. Um, so it, it's, uh, it, it's a, it's a, a wonderful firm. I think that they are. What makes them so good? I mean, they clearly are viewed as one of the best for sure. Yeah. Um, Over a very long period. And yeah. I think there's a perception amongst. VCs that if you are able to raise capital from Horsley Bridge, you're going to be in business for a while, uh, yeah, right? Think, so what what makes them so good? I, th I mean, I, I do think that they are a bellwether at, at this point. If if they're involved in a fund, right. um, it, mm -hmm. it is certainly a, it's, hu a, it's hugely signal. positive signal, right? Yeah, um, I, you know, candidly, I think it's it's a, a lot of institutional process around pattern recognition when you've been doing something you know, from the late 70s and, and right. have seen the the venture asset class grow. And, and candidly, they, they've, they've also invested in a lot of private equity and um, growth right. equity as well. Yeah. Um, they, they have a good sense for 
what makes a good investment strategy in the private markets and and what a what a good team looks like. Um, so, you know, I, I think there is something to that aura. I mean, some of it it's mm -hmm. it's hard right. to describe that that type of pattern recognition, right. but um, they they have certainly honed it over over a long period of time. Uh, and so, and, pattern recognition around venture teams and partnerships. Yeah, yeah, I think mm -hmm. I mean that's kind of fundamental to to what they do, and they they. They also have some relationships that right. have been ongoing for 30 plus years. Right. Um, so and so I, there's like a little bit of a network effect to a certain degree. There. Yeah, right. I, I think right. there's no question. And right. that was one of the things that always appealed to me about the asset class. The idea that, for one thing, in the, in the spectrum of the investment world, evaluating a venture fund is much more qualitative mm. than some of the quantitative stuff of evaluating yep. a hedge fund manager. Um, so, you, I mean, you truly are yep. meeting teams of people and, and making a decision about whether you think they're going to be able to execute on mm -hmm. the strategy they're describing. Um, but the other the other aspect that has always appealed to me is it's truly a long-term business. Um, mm. And both in terms of uh, the amount of time it takes to see the results. Yep. But if you get it right as an institutional LP, you can be backing a, a team of people for generations. And um, that, that relationship building side of it, um, it is something that uh, has always appealed to me. And it was great to see firsthand at, at a place like Horsley Bridge. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think- What know, were some of your biggest learnings while you were there? Um, so my learnings actually led, this is a, a segue to kind of how I, sure. how I wound up at, at Zendana. Um, I, our fundamental thesis at Sedona is that small funds outperform. And some of the most interesting work I did at, at Horsley was around evaluating small managers. Right. Um, and uh, it, it was just a part of the market that, mm -hmm. that always appealed to me. Were and they also emerging or they were just they were just smaller than the, the typical? Typically emerging. Mm -hmm. um, so Horsley was involved very early with Steve Anderson at Baseline and Mike Mables at, at Floodgate. Um, and so, you know, people with some institutional track record and some fantastic experience, but before they were the brands that they are today. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, besides the kind of innate attraction to the, the small and emerging fund space, the, the math of small fund investing just made sense to me. Um, mm. And uh, it's having watched the, the venture um, category expand over over the years it, it's easy to see how the incentive structure of, uh, an, of of a venture fund drives people to raise more capital over right. time um, but as we've seen that doesn't always correlate with better performance in fact it's inversely co correlated right. in most instances um, so one of my big learnings post horsley was I want to find a firm dedicated to the small end of the market and the early stage venture capital investing part of the market, mm -hmm. uh, which is ultimately what, what led me to, uh, mm -hmm. to, to meeting my partner, Michael, uh, at, at Sundana. So I want to get into this. I, I have one last question yeah. about Horsley Bridge. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. Because <laughs> I've, I've heard a rumor. It's going to be a whole separate podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Horsley Bridge. Yeah, we should just create Just investigating. Podcast. Yeah, dedicate. Um, so one of the, I think we've, you know, we've spoken quite a bit of, on this podcast about how um, many folks in the community believe that small fund size is one good uh, input um, towards outperforming the market. One of many, mm -hmm. potentially. 
Um, the problem for the big institutions is just that they can't actually invest that much money in these small funds. And so, you know, the endowments and the big fund of funds, they're, they need to figure out how to invest smaller dollars into lots of small funds. One, and, and, and one of the constraints there is that typically what we've learned, most LPs will only represent 10 to 20% of a fund at the high end. What I've heard is that Horsley actually takes a somewhat, uh, unusual approach in that they might actually invest much, much, much larger percentage of a fund of a very small fund. So rather than being 10 to 20% of a fund, they maybe are 50% of a fund. That might just be a myth and a rumor, but I can't, I can't speak to that specifically. Sure. I can't recall any particular examples where, sure. um, but it, it would, it would seem fairly consistent with their general methodology where if, if you find a good manager right. worrying about kind of external limitations um, it isn't necessarily mm. the best thing to do mm. um, so I, I don't know I don't know sure if, you can't if, speak to a specific fund but yeah. um, or, or do you see that in the market today do you see LP saying hey look I love this fund it's you know it's very small we need to allocate large dollars maybe there's a way in which we can represent 30 or 40 50 percent of the fund rather than 10. You see that in this market? Uh, you know, I, it's not something we've seen a lot of. I mean, I can speak first, and Donna, we are, we've been comfortable going up to a quarter of a fund before, maybe even higher in, in some instances. I can't think off the top of my head, but um, so we don't have the kind of 10% threshold. Um, right. I do suspect there is some, uh, some allocation that would start to make us a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I, one thing that we, we used to see more in kind of the small buyout world was institutional LPs staking first-time managers with 50% of the mm. fund in mm. return for some of the economics in uh, either the general partnership or some right. share of the carry. Uh, and that is a strategy that I don't think has worked terribly well. Um, we I, I've always had a bias against that type of arrangement. I, I think the very best teams want to be fully independent. Right. Uh, and it, it, it's just, it's a hard thing to um, to keep the alignment uh, in, in unison if, uh, if if you're owning some of the, the management team. Right, right. So tell us how you met um, Michael and and ultimately decided to leave Horsley and, and join Sinema. Well, so there, there were a few years in between. Okay. Um, so yeah, as mentioned, I wanted to find a firm that was dedicated to the small end of of the of the fund spectrum and and in seed venture capital. And everyone I talked to said, "You've got to meet Michael right. Kim." Um, right. And so I, who at the time was this uh, solo, solo basically GP. solo GP at yeah. Savannah. Yeah. Um, and he he raised his first fund. Um, I, I I could see which funds he was investing in, so I, I had a, a good idea that he had uh, you know the right nose and the right relationships on the on the GP side. He was in mm -hmm. some fantastic funds. Um, so I, I worked a, a couple different angles to try and get an introduction to to Michael. Um, ultimately, the one that worked was a a blind in-mail on LinkedIn uh, nice. that he responded wow. to. I said, think wow. that might be the first time Bold ever. Calling. Yeah, might, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. it might work sometimes. <laughs> that might be the first time in the history of LinkedIn. <laughs> I think it might be. I'm the one. Right. Um, but so we, and we, you know, Michael and I met and, and talked over a number of quarters. And then when uh, he successfully raised fund two, I, I came aboard, which was uh, nice. about 
two years ago now. Yeah, nice. Um, so. Nice. Congrats. How many, how often do you raise new funds? Is it a similar cycle to venture funds every two to three, four years? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, a, it's a pretty similar cycle, roughly on that pace. Um, I think that the seed investing space and with smaller funds tends to be a bit faster than mm. traditional life cycle venture, although that's probably not true given some of the velocity that right. we've seen right. on, on the larger fund size. Right. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's our rough cadence um, is, is every couple of years. You're still on fund two? We're investing out of our, our second fund um, and third fund will be closed soon. I can't really uh, okay. talk about it. Um, what... Uh, how how have how have 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 you seen Sendana evolve over the last few years since you've joined and and um, and where do you spend most of your time at, at the fund? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, I'll answer the second question first. So we, we also have a small direct fund where we right. co-invest alongside our GPs, typically at the kind of Series B stage. And yeah. given Michael's background as a GP at a venture firm, his skill sets obviously right. more suited to that. So uh, I would say, and you have an operating background too. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I spend more of my time on the fund evaluation side. Okay. Um, you know, we, we tag team everything, obviously, yeah. with two people. There, there's no other option. Yeah. Um, but but he takes the lead typically on most of the direct fund investing. I mean, direct uh, company investing. Um, so I spend more of my time on the fund side. Um, as far as how how we've evolved at um, Sindana, I mean, candidly, it's it, not that much has changed. Right. Um, one of the things that makes us really different from other fund of funds, I think. And one of the reasons I was attracted to this model, I mean, I, the typical fund of fund model is an asset grab. I mean, you're, you're, you're trying to grow assets under management as aggressively as right. you can because right. that's the way that you're right. compensated. Um, mm -hmm. And that's just, we take the exact opposite approach. When, when we set out to raise a fund, we build the portfolio from the bottoms up and, and we say, here, here's our existing roster that we think we, you know, and we think we can get access to, you know, these these amounts, and and um, so you know we we believe in highly concentrated portfolios yep. on the fund to fund side. So we think that a pool of capital of X amount makes uh, makes sense, and it, it, it just um, it's not something I've seen other fund to funds do. Uh, you know, we, we've had two of our. Um, two managers that we have a ton of respect for that have performed very well for us outgrow mm. the space that we're in. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the normal fund of fund reaction to that would just be to raise a larger right. fund and mm -hmm. put more capital to work in these funds as, as they've grown, grown their assets under management. Um, and we've tried to stay really disciplined about mm. the, the yeah. space so, that we're in. So let, let's dig in there a little bit um, because one thing that's, one thing that's definitely happened over the last few years is a lot of the managers that you work with, so Lair Ventures and IA Ventures and um, I'm thinking of others, Forerunner, Founder Collective, I mean, they've all raised larger funds, certainly. Mm -hmm. I mean, yep. some of those folks have gone from, you know, a $10 million fund to a 100 or $150 million fund. Yep. Um, and so... How how has your, um, I guess you know how um, how do you work with those managers today compared to a few years ago, and how what what's what percentage of those funds do you represent? Because I assume 
you know, if, if you're not raising significantly bigger funds, yep. presumably you're the percentage of, of each fund that you represent has gotten smaller that's, and that's smaller. That's a good question. Uh, and so I will say our, our third fund of funds, which will we'll close soon, will be larger than our last two. So our first what was pool. The la- what was the last First one? pool was about 90 million yeah. inclusive of yeah. the managed account on behalf of yeah. Timco. Second fund was about the same size, 90 million. So third fund will be larger than that. Um, and for precisely the reason okay. that, that you mentioned, as some of our funds have gotten larger. So across our first fund, the median fund size was about 40. Mm-hmm. For our second fund of funds, median fund size we invested in was about 60. Mm-hmm. And for this third fund, I, I suspect it will be closer to 75. Right. Um, and really the, the reason that we've seen our GPs grow their seed fund sizes that seed rounds have expanded. Yep. And um, yeah, th- there has been an, incre- a, an increase in pre-money valuations relative to five years ago. Although over the last three or four years, we, we really haven't seen a rapid increase mm. in pre-money valuations across our portfolio. Mm. Our median entry pre-money valuation across the portfolio is still $6 million mm. and has been for the past several years. Mm. What's changed is that the, the, the amount of capital they're raising the, these companies at the seed stage is slightly larger. Right. And because we want all of our funds to be leading these seed rounds, right. they need to deploy slightly more capital. The, the other thing that's changed slightly is I think some of our managers w- would tell you they were under-reserved mm-hmm. for earlier funds. Meaning they don't have enough, they, don't ha- they didn't have as much follow-on capital as they would have hoped. Correct. Yeah. Um, and so w- we've seen them correct for that with slightly larger funds in more recent uh, vintages and uh, across our portfolio, our managers rate—I mean, reserve on average about two thirds of the fund for follow-on capital. Um, so, on average, if you go back to Sandana Fund One, on average, what percentage of a fund did you typically represent compared to maybe today, as the seed funds have grown in size? That's a good question, and one that I, I would have to look more into the data. I mean, we're one of the three largest LPs in every core fund that we're in. Okay. So I would imagine on the low end, we're eight to 10%. And yeah. on the high end, we've been as much of as a quarter of, mm-hmm. of a fund. Right. Um, and we've tried to maintain that. And in fact, in the, the two most recent core funds that we've come into, we've increased our participation uh, pretty meaningfully despite the fact that they were hard-capped funds and mm. way oversubscribed, um, which we hope is a testament mm. to the relationship that we we have with our GPs. Uh-huh. How about the two funds? You mentioned two funds. You don't have to name them, but um, two funds that you said maybe graduated mm-hmm. from from your thesis. Yeah. How do you, how do you, how, maybe speak to that. How sure, sure. That? Yeah. So uh, we think of our mandate as sub $100 million seed-only funds. Right. And... Some of our managers have started to do more in the small Series A space. Yep. And, you know, I, I think that can still be an interesting market and, and subsequently raised funds larger than $100 million in, in order to, to be able to write those checks. Um, so, like IA Ventures is an example, right? I think IA they just Ventures. raised $160. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, still a fantastic strategy and yeah. obviously, you know, wonderful investment yes. managers. Yeah. Um, Michael and I have been pretty committed to sticking to our guns yeah. in terms yeah. of doing what we what we said we we're going to do. It's what we think we're good at. And we also, I think that the value proposition of a fund of funds 
falls apart a little bit as funds get larger mm -hmm. because RLPs mm -hmm. can access these funds directly. So if you think about Etimco, right. obviously our largest LP, thirty-five Etimco billion dollars. Etimco is uh, University of Texas Endowment. Correct. Okay, um, and so, they are one of your largest LPs. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And and you know they like to write checks of forty, fifty million dollars right. into uh, into these private managers, which you can do at one hundred and fifty, two hundred million dollars mm -hmm. or even higher. Um, when the median fund size is seventy-five, you can't write a fifty million. Okay, check. so that's so, really interesting. So what you're saying is that. Your relationship with Utimco makes sense when they're giving you money to then invest in lots of small funds. But as the funds get bigger and bigger and maybe go from C to Series A, then it begins to make a lot more sense for Utimco, for example, just to d just invest directly, directly into those funds yeah. rather than through Sendana. Yep. And I will say right. in, in the instance of the two funds that have kind of moved beyond our, our scope and, and mandate, RLPs have stepped in to, to participate in very meaningful right. ways. So right. I, you know, candidly, I think of that as a another value proposition for our linear right. partners. Sure. I mean, it, it, to the extent that some of our managers do outgrow the space, we're providing kind of a farm system for them to mm -hmm. get an early look at managers that, mm -hmm. that want to continue to raise more capital. Um, so, I, so that takes a lot of discipline because, you know, presumably you have access to those two funds that are doing very well and moving up the stack. And presumably you're saying, you're essentially saying no to continuing to invest larger dollars with those funds and take fees and carry on that. Correct. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We, I mean, it, it, it does take discipline. We hope it, it, pays off as a, as a smart strategy. Um, it's definitely a, a painful decision right. that, that right. we have to make and, and their managers that we have a ton of respect for uh, and we think will we'll continue to do well. But when your fundamental investment thesis is that small funds outperform, you have to have some threshold after which you, you don't want to participate yeah. as, as fund sizes grow. Um, so it, it's, it's something that Michael and I talk a lot about and, right. and it, it's always a, a challenging decision. Um, we think that, so when we meet a new fund that we're considering for you know adding to the portfolio, we spend a lot of time thinking about whether they're committed to being seed managers over mm. the long term. Um, because I think if you're truly dedicated to being first institutional investors and working with companies at the most formative stage, there, there's a natural cap to how much capital you can raise and, and deploy at the very earliest stage. So if we can identify managers that are truly committed to that, um, then then we think we have a higher likelihood of them staying in, in the seed landscape for a longer period of time. Right. How do you define seed? Because there's you know shifting definitions and market conditions, and over time, the definition of what seed is has, put, has changed, even if the name hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. So... And I think everybody draws the lines in a little bit different places. But but how do you define seed when you're thinking about these are the things that fit within in our buckets? Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a great question. Obviously, the nomenclature has been parsed and reparsed um, multiple times. Um, you know, we we think of institutional seed so that that if, if I think of the what a typical deal looks like in this Indana portfolio, it's. A, Six million dollar pre, two million dollar raise. RGPs writing seven fifty to one point two five, so leading that seed round for at a post money valuation of around eight million. 
Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, we recognize that there there is uh, room on either side of that. So we we have several managers that are very well established as pre-seed. So mm. Manu at, at K9 and Tim yep. Connors at Pivot North. Yep. Um, and, and we think that 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 strategy can work really well um, if, if you have the right GP. We haven't done anything in the kind of post-seed space. Right. We know there are, there are people pursuing that as an opportunity. And that's uh, like the bullpen capitals of the world. A capital, yeah. A capital, um, yeah. Again, yeah. it's um, it's a, a valid strategy. Yeah. Um, we we have a bias that the the opportunity set for for post-seed um, isn't necessarily the most attractive. So what we've seen in our portfolio is that the companies that are doing well but need a little extra runway in order to get the traction necessary to raise a great Series A, the insiders always step up and bridge that. That's really interesting. So if, if you're thinking about the, the, the opportunity set, it's, it's companies that weren't doing well enough to go right to A, and weren't doing well enough, or the insiders had enough conviction to bridge them to to an interesting A. And um, and it, Trade Desk is a is a good recent example of that. That's uh, so Trade Desk just went public, and uh, I believe uh, Roger at IA and Eric at at Founder Collective have written quite a bit about how you know struggle. There was there were some periods of of yeah, tough times for the company, and several bridges, and they just continued to invest along the way. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying that. For companies like that, more often than not, the existing investors will continue to invest rather than those companies looking for an outside firm like a post post A. Yeah. Oh, sorry, post, post C, C firm. Right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's our thesis, and that right. has it, the early performance across our portfolio indicates mm. that's the case. That the best companies that have raised any type of bridge or seed extension, it's been led by insiders. Um, oh. So the performance of that insider-led bridge companies um is is much higher than than outsider led so yeah uh, but i it, i think that's related to a, a fundamental belief of ours is that one of the most important responsibilities of an institutional seed investor particularly one that's leading the seed round is to make sure the company stays alive long enough to reach its potential so ultimately that means graduating to to series a and so we spend a lot of time looking at graduation rates across our our portfolio um, or any new fund that we would consider adding to to our roster uh, that, that's that's a metric that we pay a lot of attention to how many how many um, venture funds do you work with today um I'm gonna say 15 core positions yep um, and that's where you typically represent whatever it is, 10 to 20% of a fund. Yeah, or yeah. the three largest LPs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so checks from 7 to $10 million. Yeah. Um, and, then, um, and then we have a number of pilot positions, where, which are roughly a million dollar commitments to groups that we really like that are either in ecosystems we still have some questions about or pursuing an investment strategy in a, in a sector we still uh, want to learn about. Um, but that's kind of our roster of up and up and coming funds that we want to keep keep an eye on and do those do those sometimes graduate to core positions or that's the hope yeah that that exactly <clears throat> that that that's the hope and uh if i look at our pilot portfolio so we, we started doing pilots in fund two um and I how many did, of those did you do? i think we did six in fund two maybe five um which are kind of like get to know you relationships with a venture manager it's a slightly smaller check 
um, you can begin to work with them for a couple years and exactly right. okay. yeah and learn how they think about things yep. you know and basically see how their investment strategy bears itself out over a, a period of time um, and I, I you know of those five or six pilots one of them has graduated to a core position another one we're making a recommendation to it, it will graduate to a core position um, for, for our next fund one of them we won't participate going forward um so I, I think the the program is is working the way that we hoped it's it really is an opportunity to to learn about um, whatever aspect of of that right. strategy we have a right. question about we we can spend several years diligencing it and and making sure that we can get comfortable or if we can't then right. we, we move on is there signaling risk for managers around that pilot pilot program in the sense that if you if it if you don't decide to re-up into a core position, is it a bad signal for the manager? I, I, that's, a, that's a very fair question. Um, and I, I suspect that there is some type of a, a signal. Um, I, I don't know how GPs think about that. Uh, in our experience so far, most of the, the pilots that we've worked with understand our reason for not having conviction about their strategy as a core and are excited to get to work with us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if over time more and more of these pilots aren't graduating, I, I think that, you know, m maybe a signaling risk is something that right. people start to, to worry about. Um, so it, it's something that I think we'll have to be mindful of. I, you know, I think signaling, people talk a lot about it um, across the spectrum, obviously right. in direct company investing, right. um, people, people talk a lot about signaling. We kind of feel like communication is a, a key to mitigating any type of signaling. So if you're very upfront about or with a manager about here are the things that we have questions with about your strategy, we're going to spend the next couple of years evaluating yep. those. And yep. if if we get there, then we'll consider you know, yep. coming in as a core. And if we don't, then uh, it, it's not, not going to be something we pursue going forward. I think as long as everyone's aware of that at the beginning, aware of the risk, at least. I mean, it, that doesn't mean the risk isn't there, um, but a, at least, you know, all parties are informed about um, how everyone's yeah. approaching it. How, how early do you be, I mean, with your existing v VC managers that you work with, how early do you begin to have conversations and message around your either participation or uh or non-participation in future funds like I, you know in other words does it work such that you know a manager that you work with comes along they give you the big pitch and then it's like the big decision afterwards or are you beginning to message what your likely participation is like a for an existing manager yeah. following into a, a, yes. a subsequent or fund. or if it's a pilot manager right. becoming a pitching core. as yeah. a core i mean it starts almost i mean years in advance of, right. of the fundraise um and and i think um it, it never comes down to like a, a final pitch and then right. we make a decision i right. think we, we've communicated all along and, and honestly it's important for for our job to have an idea of when our managers are going to raise what size of fund they're they're likely to target and what our participation can be it's that's a big part of the way that that we fundraise is we build a forward calendar of 
where we think our commitments are going to be right. over the next three or four calendar years. And again, to the bottoms up approach, we say, okay, this is how much money we can responsibly deploy to what we think of as the best seed venture capital funds in the world. And so if, if we don't have a good picture of when those funds are, are going to be raised, and we understand that they're, they're, it's a moving target, yep. and, and sometimes it happens earlier or later. Um, but but so we we try and stay pretty on top of the timing of of, uh, of our our GPs and when they're going to raise, and also you know what they're thinking in terms of fund size and if there's likely to be any strategy shift. Because if they tell us we're going to go raise a two hundred million dollar right. fund and start doing Series right. A, then right. we, we'll you know let them know that's not a fit. How do you think about uh, deal flow of of funds, new funds, managers that you meet from from your position in the market as an LP, um, you know, it's something that that VCs think about all the time and and is is constantly top of mind. Uh, and for you know for someone like Horsley who has been in the community for a very long time and and has built a reputation and they're thinking about you know investing in, in emerging managers you imagine they would have good deal flow as a relatively younger firm you guys have have built a strong reputation and so you know people know you in the market but how do you th- how did you think about that in the earlier days of getting the word out and and getting to getting to those managers and finding people who are thinking about starting a new fund who who maybe had not yet heard about Sandana. How does an LP think about yeah, deal flow? Yeah. Sure, sure. I, and this it's probably a better question for Michael because he was around when, you know, the the brand was really emerging by the time I joined. I, this it sounds like hubris, but I don't worry about the top of our funnel at all. We I, I think that we see every seed fund yeah. under a hundred million dollars yeah. that that wants to raise, um, which is really a testament to to the brand that, that Michael's built. And and we, we think a big part of that is specialization. Be, because we're focused exclusively right. in, in this stage and, and this fund size, um, it, it, we've we've kind of become uh, you know the 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 fund that people go see if, if they're mm-hmm. thinking of pursuing that type of strategy. Um, so, you know, it's on us to make the right decisions about where to participate there. Um, but I, I, so at, at this point, I think the, the brand is what um, yeah. it brings us really interesting deal flow. And, but, you know, before the podcast started, we were talking a little bit about the advisor networks mm-hmm. that, um, that we've set up at Sundana. Mm-hmm. And that's one way that we, in the early days, helped spread the offense. And we right. got some really interesting deal flow um, in, in terms of some, some great um, funds that we participated in that, that came through those advisor networks of founders and entrepreneurs, as well as traditional lifecycle venture capitalists. How do you, you know, uh, switching gears a little bit, um, you work with, let's say, 18 uh, seed funds, core, core seed funds. Um, five, five years ago, you know, my, my sense is that most of those folks were uh, quite collaborative, investing in one another's companies and startups and um, round sizes have gotten larger. These funds are writing bigger checks, and it definitely feels like a lot of the seed funds have moved from being highly collaborative to kind of competitive. Yep. How do you think about that sitting as a layer on top of it, and how do you coordinate and work with your managers who now might be 
highly competitive, whereas maybe they were collaborative five years ago. Yeah. I, so I, I think one general observation is I, I think that there's going to be a natural trend towards more competition at, at the seed stage, you know, driven both by the increased number of managers pursuing those opportunities, but also, as mentioned, you know, funds raising right. larger pools of capital, so they have to like, deploy more money. You know, the Sindana conference yesterday, I'm looking around the room, there's a lot of seed funds. Yeah. yeah. And they're all pretty good. Yeah. And they're all competing against each other for the same deals. Yeah. And you're sitting in the room on top of it, you know. So, yeah, I, I think a totally, totally fair question. I, I still think of the seed space as much more collaborative than anything you see in the later stages mm-hmm. of venture capital. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's still high conviction, ownership driven investing at the, the seed stage, but, you know, Eight to twelve percent of a company, typically, versus right. twenty-five to thirty, which is okay. what the Sequoia benchmark Axel right. would, would target at a, right. at a Series A. So the elbows aren't quite as sharp as right. um, as they have gotten at, at the later stages of, of venture capital. Um, but I, I do think we are going to see more competition. So one of the ways that um, portfolio funds have have thought about that is that there are their target is to lead deals where they write the largest check. There's always room in the syndicate for you know a, a smaller check, yep. even sometimes a second lead. And so I, I do think there there are silly opportunities for for our funds to collaborate. Interestingly, we, we've actually seen an increase in funds or companies with more than one of our GPs participating over over the years. And so right. the, the math suggests that we would start to see more more overlap and. Candidly, when we're looking at a new, adding a new core manager to the portfolio, one of the things we spend a lot of time on is will their deal flow and, and portfolio be accretive to our portfolio? So mm-hmm. we look for managers without a lot of overlap with our existing mm-hmm. GPs. Right. Um, so long story short, we, we still think that there is room for collaboration at, at the seed stage. Um, I, I do think that um, we we have a, a good roster of managers that, that actually like to work together in, in most instances. Um, and, you know, I, I think there are times... Yeah, yeah. sorry. So, I, I was going to say, there, there are times when a GP is looking at an opportunity in a new geography where he or she doesn't feel comfortable taking the lead position and working with a local fund makes more sense. So writing a slightly smaller check and taking lower ownership um, mm. or that that's happened in, in new sectors as well. Um, so we, we have generalist funds that are starting to pay more attention to, to hardware and right. they're willing to write smaller checks, take smaller ownership as they learn about the sector. Um, so again, I, I think there are still opportunities for collaboration, um, but uh, it, it, it's certainly something that you know we'll pay attention to as, as fund sizes have increased. Any, um, I mean, it seems... It seems like it would be pretty rare that you come across a new manager that has very little overlap or co-investments with your existing managers, given you work with about 18 venture funds, and those venture funds invest in a lot of companies. Where do you think that, where does that stem from when you do meet a manager that has very little overlap? Yeah. Um, where do you, what are those pockets where you see that? Yeah, yeah, great question. So I, I think 
If it's a sector-focused fund where some of our GPs don't have a lot of experience, so uh, you know, just to give a concrete example, we, we don't have as much exposure in digital health or in fintech hmm. um, as we might like across the portfolio. Okay. So we've spent some time looking at dedicated managers in those sectors, uh, and that's an example where overlap might not be as, yep. as high. The, the other kind of obvious example is managers outside the United States. Right. So we we haven't made a commitment um, outside the U.S., but we've we've met with over 300 managers since 2010 that are, are based outside the U.S. Um, and uh, I think that there's the possibility for us to do a, a pilot commitment to a non-U.S. manager. Yep. Um, which would certainly be a creative deal flow yep. um, and yep. uh, give us an opportunity to, to learn about a, a new or emerging ecosystem. Um, so yeah, th- those are two, two examples. Uh, but you know, candidly, it's, it's a big challenge. There are a lot of great managers who come through our door and, and right. there is a substantial overlap with our portfolio. And uh, you know, we, we, just, we have to think about whether what they're doing is going to be different enough from what we already have to, to add value. Yeah, yep. Um, how do, how do folks how do folks get in touch with you? I mean, I know you said you don't have any problem uh, meeting new managers. You meet with about four hundred managers yeah. every single year. Um, do you do you take cold meetings? Do you take cold emails, or all of this is through cold, cold, cold LinkedIn and cold yeah, LinkedIn yeah. emails? That's my yeah, preferred emails. method of guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Or, or or is is a warm intro like always? the best way to go. Warm intro is certainly always the best. Um, I I will say, you know. And warm intro is usually through your existing VC relationships? Yeah, I mean, most institutional LPs will tell you the best Mm. reference they can get is from an existing GP who says, I've worked with these guys. Right. I want to work with these guys. They're they're great. Um, So that's certainly the best introduction you can get. Um, You know, that said, I, I think Michael and I are are very interested in fostering the ecosystem and paying it forward with advice around some of the best practices we've seen. So I, I'm I'm definitely happy to meet with um, with new managers, and um, it, it's it's an important part of what we do. Um, so uh, yeah. And where do they reach you? Uh, so my my email is probably the best way, which is just Graham at SendanaCapital.com. Watch out. Yeah. Watch out. Well, the inbox. <laughs> <laughs> um, Graham, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Um, this was this was really helpful, and um, and I think our our listeners will appreciate it too. So thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a pre-seed venture capital firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. We'd like to thank Silicon Valley Bank for sponsoring season two of Origins. At SVB, the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, its experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the Silicon Valley Bank team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you liked this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glawe, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound. 